the calls have already started coming in. 702. The Naked Scientist. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dr. Christmas. <laughs> Naked Scientist time. We're taking your calls on 011-8830-702 in the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I am good. Sorry. I just was having a bit of a laughing fit there. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm getting it out of my system. Ooh. Doctor, when are you guys going to get over us beating you? I'm just asking on behalf of all the English. <laughs> oh, it's old history. We forgot that uh, okay. a couple of weeks ago. Worst two minutes of our lives for about two minutes, and uh, we're bigger than that. So there we we're go. We're on to the next defeat now. There we go. The questions have already started coming in thick and fast. The first one on the WhatsApp line, 072 says, Dr. Chris Smith, about small and large intestines, do they absorb different types of nutrients altogether, or are there segments in the large intestines that absorbs different nutrients from the different types of foods? If I eat spinach, when I go to the toilet, it looks like it's not properly digested compared to when I eat pup or potatoes. That's from KK in Pretoria. Hi, KK. The answer is yes. Different parts of the intestine do different jobs, and they're specialized for doing those things. Most of the absorption of calories and nutrients and vitamins comes from the small small intestine. That's the longest part of the intestine, and it has the greatest surface area and specialist system set up in it to, to soak up the calories that you need from your food. So when you put food into your stomach, the first thing that starts to happen in the stomach is acid there plus an enzyme called pepsin starts to break down proteins. The stomach squirts out small aliquots of stomach contents into the first part of the small intestine, which is called the duodenum, because it's 12 inches long, which is duodenum 12 in Latin. And opening into that structure is a pipe from the liver and the pancreas and those pipes which merge at just before the entrance to the small intestine are where bile which helps you to break up fats and get fats into small droplets that can be easily absorbed comes in and pancreatic juice which is a rich mixture of proteins protein degrading enzymes fat degrading enzymes and carbohydrate degrading enzymes so at the top of the small intestine, there's a very intense digestive environment, which together with a mixing and moving backwards and forwards of the contents, breaks up all the food into small, in some cases, individual molecules, in other cases, small groups of molecules, which are very easy to absorb through the wall of the intestine. Now, once you get to the end of the small intestine, where most of that absorption has happened, including down the end of the ileum, which is the last part of the small bowel where all your vitamin B12 gets uh, soaked up, you then start to tip the food into your large bowel uh, or what's left of the food. And the large bowel is largely there to help you soak up the water because you produce enormous volumes of digestive juices. It's measured in litres every day. And the large bowel is there to extract that water back and dry out what's in there more so that you can then produce things which are more socially acceptable and easy to move around until you're ready to get rid of them. There are lots of bacteria in the large bowel though and they also have an important role because one of the things they do is to produce various other chemicals and signals which are absorbed through the wall of the bowel 
and they get into your bloodstream and they do very important jobs in your body and we've only really begun to realize how important this microbiome is in more recent years and these include things that manipulate your metabolism they affect even how a baby's brain develops if you're a pregnant mum so there's a whole raft of things that you get from your large bowel in addition to water but food digestion doesn't really go on there that's the job of the large of the small bowel Okay, and, and then I have a question on what you've just said, um, um, Doctor. There was um, a medical professional um, who was sharing that they believe that in a few decades or years' time, people will start to look at surgeries like gastric bypass as actually kind of barbaric because what ends up happening is that it's in essence a weight loss surgery that then leaves a person starving and malnutritioned. Do you think that that is the case? Well, it's certainly true that being malnourished is not the same thing as being short of calories. There are enormous numbers of people around the world who are overweight, but they're also malnourished because they're mm. eating all the wrong things or they're on a diet where all they can afford is junk. And the junk makes you fat because it's stuffed full of sugar, but it doesn't have other essentials of what constitutes a healthy diet. Now, at the moment, it's certainly true that we have an obesity crisis around the world with half the world population getting towards that point or more. And this is a huge risk to our health in terms of it's the biggest risk factor for diabetes and other metabolic syndromes, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, joint disorders, whole raft of things. It's one of the worst things you can do for your health apart from smoke. At the moment, sorting out obesity is a higher priority than sorting out people who might have surgery to cure their obesity and then have more specialist nutritional requirements. Because I suppose one way of looking at it is to say, if you have treatment for your obesity, and this involves having some kind of gastric bypass or something, then yes, you may render yourself at risk of some kind of nutritional deficiency, although that is rare. But if you know that you're at risk of that, you can be monitored or you can do something about it. Whereas if you're just somebody who is, for various reasons, carrying too much weight and at risk of all these things, then you're far worse off than if you've got that sorted out. I agree with them, though, in the sense that in the future, we ideally won't have to go down the route of what is major abdominal surgery and has a very high risk profile attached to it because there will be easier ways to do this. And we're beginning to see some of these medicines and treatments, including things like Azempic, these injections, Wigovi, which are able to manipulate your metabolism in such a way that they do help people to control their weight better. And these probably will replace the need for surgery in the long run. All right. Thank you so much for that one, uh, Doctor. We're going to take a break. We see your questions on the WhatsApp line 0727021702. You can give us a call 011-883-0702. The Naked Scientist. So with The Naked Scientist at 14 minutes to 3 o'clock, we take your calls 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. There's a question from Tusi from Ekurleni Fosloris who says, Please ask the doctor, how does science explain strange dreams, like if one dreams of a situation where they are flying? Hi, Tusi. Well, the bottom line is when we go to sleep and dream, and it's a myth that people don't dream. Some people say that they never dream. You all do. And we dream regularly every night. And you dream when you are having a phase of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep. So if you watch someone when they're asleep, then they'll go through periods when they appear to be 
really restless. You'll notice their eyes are flicking around below their eyelids a lot. Their breathing will change. That's when they're dreaming. And when you go into dream sleep, your brain waves change very radically compared to when you're in deep sleep, but also compared to when you're awake. So sleeping is a very different brain waves pattern from when you're awake and dreaming is different again. So clearly there's something special about dreaming. And if we look at which bits of the brain appear to be talking to each other when a person is dreaming, it looks to all intents and purposes as though the normal connectivity, the way the brain is wired and the way different regions are synced up with each other, this changes when we go to sleep. So some people theorize that when we're dreaming, we are disconnecting the different regions of the brain that would normally share information and then exert logical thought and control about what's likely to be the, the interpretations we're making of the experiences we're having. And so you just tend to experience the raw experience because the parts of the brain that would enable you to experience those things when you're awake and conscious, they remain active, but they don't have any of the top-down control saying, no, that's, that's just not logical or no, that's not sensible. So you just experience things impulsively as though they were really happening. So it's perfectly possible to be transported in your imagination when you're dreaming and for it to feel completely real like it's happening because your BS detector is effectively disconnected when you're asleep. Thank you so much for that question, Tusi. Um, one comes through saying, what is the average lead time between undergoing surgery for colon cancer and it reoccurring again? I mean, I think this will be a very difficult one to answer because it would vary, I'm assuming. It very much does vary according to that person's presentation. Now, colon cancer is very common, but unfortunately, it's very common to present late. In other words, people often turn up with symptoms when their disease is already quite advanced. And what we know about almost all cancers, almost no exceptions, is that the sooner and earlier you treat them, the better the outcome. And so if you catch a tumour which is very, very early or hasn't even happened yet, there are some situations where there are pre-malignant changes that occur in certain parts of the body and you can spot them. If you deal with those pre-malignant conditions before they've even become fully-fledged cancers, clinically the outcome's superb. If you wait until you have very advanced disease with spread to an extensive area and to beyond the intestines to other sites in the body obviously the prognosis is going to be quite different now that's not true for all cancers because some of them are very amenable to newer forms of chemotherapy and drugs and they can be very well controlled in that way colon cancer you can have chemotherapy for that surgery remains one of the most important early interventions that you can have to make sure you remove the source especially if that is a very early presentation and there are various things you can do to keep an eye on somebody to see if you can catch any signs of recurrence early. And one of the ways of doing it is with regular colonoscopies. There are drugs. Some people take aspirin. Aspirin has been shown for various reasons, probably it suppresses inflammation, to dramatically reduce the likelihood that certain cancers, including colon, to make a comeback. So the bottom line here, if you'll excuse the pun, is it will very much depend on how a person presents, when they present, and how their case is managed, whether or not they're going to have any kind of recurrence, and therefore what ultimate long-term survival is going to be. The bottom line is, the earlier you catch this, the earlier you intervene and treat, the, the outcome's going to be. Thank you so much for that question. And then there's one that I think many have not come to understand why this is the case. So they're saying on a lighter note, 
I've always wondered if that naked scientist in your studio is really naked physically. I thought we could use this as an opportunity to share why you are referred to as the naked scientist. <laughs> well, it the name of a program which we one of the first podcasts and internet radio program to exist and and i dreamt it up as a, a name for a program because i thought it would make people laugh and then think. and this is back in the year 2001 we did the naked scientists as a bbc and other radio program and and passed as it was to become and and it did indeed make people laugh and then think. And in fact, when we first created the website for it, about 80% of the visitors were coming for the word naked rather than anything to do with the science. And so many people said, well, that's brilliant. But certainly not preaching to the converted. Fantastic for sharing that one. Then a question. Um, somebody was talking about Jägermeister and asking if, it is being, if it's been scientifically proven that it is a digestive because people will use it as a digestive or for anti-inflammatory treatment for things like coughs and eczema and stomach illnesses. Is that scientific or is that just an excuse for people to drink? It's like the latter. To me. I've never heard anyone prescribed. We have under limited <laughs> certain circumstances prescribed uh, alcohol to patients. Uh, when I was first doing one of my first jobs as a surgeon, we had a patient came in who was alcohol dependent and alcohol is probably the only drug which if you stop it suddenly will actually kill a person because alcohol potentiates the action of all the inhibitory systems in your brain and if you take alcohol regularly and enlarge you basically switch down your brain's inhibitory system and without the inhibiting effect of the alcohol brain can become overexcitable and people can begin to fit and therefore we we sometimes used to give people doses of alcohol regularly in hospital if they were an alcoholic until we got them stabilized on other treatment in order to prevent them going into uh, withdrawal which led to fatal and uh, fitting but no i've not heard any evidence that jaegers are a good treatment to help digestive system in fact the reverse is probably true because things which have alcohol content if you don't use them responsibly so in moderation and in small amounts then can be very irritating to the of your esophagus and your stomach and there is evidence suggesting who drink strong alcohol in amounts have a higher risk of getting all kinds of malignancies including breast cancer as well actually probably for various reasons but in the intestines specifically and, and in the stomachs uh, bear that in mind and responsibly and sensibly all right so here's a voice note good afternoon um dr chris and uh, i just wanted to find out whether um the use of peroxide to uh you know low low concentration obviously to um clear your mucus from your um your throat and nasal cavities is that uh advisable because that's what a, a friend told me that she's doing and it works for her so thanks very much if you can answer that my name is christine thanks bye i unfortunately the line wasn't great and i didn't quite catch what christine said she was doing to clear the mucus how did she say she did that so i'm going to just do something very quickly because we're also struggling with your line dr chris smith we're going to quickly get you on a a, a, a better line so that you can answer clearly because we're also losing you and having you dip in and out so let's 
702. The Naked Scientist. As we wrap up with The Naked Scientist, 011-883-0702 in the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. I hope we have you on a much better line, Dr. Chris. Can you hear me clearly? Uh, I can, and it's not dipping in and out now, so that's fantastic. Better. So the question that was being asked over the voice note was saying that they heard from a friend that if they use a low dose of peroxide, and they were asking if it's safe to do so, uh, to clear mucus from the throat and nasal cavities. Mm. Well, you can use hydrogen peroxide, which is what I hope she's referring to, not some other form of peroxide. Usually, hydrogen peroxide is what use is what is used as a mouthwash, and and it's perfectly safe for that. It's the same stuff we use to uh, sterilize contact lenses, for example, or on hospital wards. We fog the ward in order to get rid of infections if we've had an outbreak of an infection in that particular area. So it's a good antimicrobial and it's safe and it breaks down into oxygen and water. As long as you don't get it where you shouldn't put it, you shouldn't put peroxide in your eyes and you must only use a dilute peroxide, not the industrial strength stuff. It's not going to do you any harm if used responsibly in that sort of way. Whether or not that's going to help you decongest yourself I'd be skeptical about that because the reason we have nasal congestion is because A, there's usually infection or an allergy. This has caused inflammation. Inflammation causes blood vessels to, to open up and become leaky. So you get swelling because of fluid in the tissues, which takes up space and squeezes the tissues uh, against each other. So you close up your nasal passages and also, it drives the glands in the, in the nasal passages and throat to make more mucus. So putting those factors together, you feel all clogged up. So I don't think peroxide is likely to make much of a difference to that. But getting rid of the cold that's caused it or managing the allergy with some antihistamines that's caused it, that probably will. Dr. Chris Smith, I think you've answered that so well. And I'm glad that you were mentioning that actually uh, uh, the, it might solve the temporary immediate thing, but not the long term issue. Yeah. Um, and so always be careful. Don't, don't uh, listen to what people say just because they heard it or saw it on YouTube or someone told them at the bus stop. You want to see what the proper clinical data is that supports this. So ask someone, well, where's the clinical evidence for that? Who told you that? And make sure that it's a reputable source who gives you any kind of health advice ever because there's a lot of quackery out there and a lot of snake oil going around that could be very misleading and in some cases quite dangerous. So quick one before you go. Prince from Merton as asking the glasses that we buy for fashion are they good for our eyes or do they have a negative impact on our eyesight you should only correct your vision with lenses that are right for your eye problem and that's why a visit to the optician is really important because they will put lenses in front of your eye to work out what correction is needed to get you seeing correctly and then they will make up a, a prescription that's appropriate the exception to that is as we get older we do tend to become a bit more long-sighted because our lens stiffens in the front of our eye that's called presbyopia and so putting something that magnifies things a bit in front of the eye and therefore shifts the focal point back a bit um sorry that's the wrong way around forward a bit um does help and so as a result of that it, you can use just weak magnifying glasses and that's the exception but if you want to see properly and clearly and safely especially for driving and things like that you need to go and see an optician who will get the right prescription for you and work out what the correction is that's needed for your eyes specifically Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. We are back together next week, Monday. And thank you to all of you for joining us on 702 Afternoons. The conversations will be podcast. Head over to 702.co.za or download the app. It's 3.0.